Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers farmers and be gumbled. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, thanks for joining me for Countrywide. My name's Megan Hughes. In the next half hour, cattle prices seem to be in a downward plummet, but what does this mean for you in the supermarket? And also, is this going to change at any time soon? And also today, macadamias are one of the only native Australian plants that have been commercialised for food, but there is work underway to get more. But first up, a bit has been happening between Australia and its trading partners this week. Farmers say they're increasingly worried about a looming trade deal with the European Union, calling it a dud. So Trade Minister Don Farrell, he actually walked away from trade talks earlier in the year and he is actually soon expected to meet with negotiators and possibly close this EU trade deal. And that's been five years in the making, I think. But the farm sector wants him to hold out for better access. National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan has this report. Normally in a trade deal, there's winners and losers. It's really hard to see that there are any winners at all in this particular deal for Australian agriculture. President of the National Farmers Federation, Fiona Simpson, is worried Australian farmers are about to lose out in a big way. Minister Farrell in the next couple of weeks is heading to Osaka for the G7 trade ministers meeting. We know he's having meetings with his European counterpart on the sidelines and we're really concerned that he is taking his signing pen with him and he is ready to ink a deal that is really a dud deal for Australian agriculture. She says the deal would impose tough conditions on farmers and exporters wanting to trade to the EU, currently Australia's third largest trading partner and a market with a GDP of more than $16 trillion US trillion last year. Well, at the moment, the offers on the table would actually put us at a significant disadvantage to farmers in, in countries like Canada, New Zealand or, or South South America, it would not be commercially meaningful for Australian agriculture for nearly any commodity. And in actual fact, it would send some of our commodities backwards uh, to the position that they're in now. Farmers are concerned it could include requirements to meet European farming standards, which they claim are impractical in Australia and restrict the use of product names such as Prosecco and Feta. Certainly what we're seeing at the moment is a bad deal for every sector uh, in Australian agriculture, uh, and that's very unusual to see uh, it being a dud deal across the board. Dubbo-based sheep meat exporter Roger Fletcher is no stranger to trade deals, trading into more than 80 markets. He's seen the difference a good trade deal can make. We've done some great jobs on... um, Free trade agreements from uh, Korea, China, UK recently. Um, we got a huge challenge with um, the EU at present. I think the government's trying very hard on it and we're working with them to try and get an outcome. But there's 450 million people in, in Europe and actually we buy more foodstuffs um, imports into Australia than we export. and um, But they're fighting very hard um, and that, that would be a great help to the sheep industry if we could uh, lift our exports into, into Europe and it's, it's a battle right on in this minute. 
In a statement, the Trade Minister Don Farrell told the ABC he's made it clear Australia wants an agreement with the EU, but not at any cost. He says any deal must include practical benefits for Australian businesses, including improved market access for farmers. Fiona Simpson says the minister must take the time to get it right. If it's not a good deal for Australian farmers, he needs to keep the pen in his pocket and walk away, stay at the table, keep talking. There's no rush to do this deal. It will be with Australian farmers for the next 50 years. Uh, it's too important. That report was ended by National Farmers Federation former President Fiona Simpson. She used her last week in the position to advocate for a better trade deal. And now there is a new NFF president calling for the same. But in some good news on trade now, this week, China has agreed to review the tariffs it places on Australian wine. And this was after a breakthrough in negotiations. To give you some context, those tariffs are more than 200%. So when they were put in place in 2020, it cut Australian exports significantly and caused a glut of red wine across the country, forcing grape growers to some of them had to actually pull out their vines. And this review is expected to take five months, but it's really being welcomed by the wine industry. As a result of it, Australia has actually agreed to suspend its action in the World Trade Organization. The South Australian wine industry was really, really impacted by these tariffs. If you think about it, a lot of red wine comes out of that state. Association President and Coonawarra winemaker Kirsty Balnaves explains to Sam Bradbrook how much this trade is actually worth to them. Uh, it's been very challenging. So we went from exporting about $1.3 billion worth of wine into China to now just over 10 million. So that gives you some enormity about how much these tariffs have impacted not only our industry but also regional communities. Uh, speaking of those uh, regional communities, what would tariffs being gone mean, I guess, for the average wine grape grower or, or producer? Uh, well, regional communities are supported through the wine industry by wine tourism and also employment. And any positive news in these regions is very welcomed by our wine industry. Is the industry essentially ready to get straight back into the China market as soon as it can? Yeah, absolutely. So I recently came back from a delegation to China with uh, Premier Peter Malinowskis and other delegates from education, food and wine. And it was really interesting over there. We were very warmly received and we were very welcomed and the relationships are still there and they're as keen to start working with us again as we are with them. I guess if you had a, uh, a wish list then for the next five months or however long this review takes, you know, what, what would your wish for the outcome be? Uh, look, I hope it's positive. Um, and I'm sure it will be because we want to resume relationship with that, with our largest trading partner uh, and also get back in, on the ground with people, get back into, the, in, into China and actually host delegations back out into our regions as well and resume the very friendly and respectful relationships we had in 2020 and previously. There was, as part of the, you know, when the tariffs were ongoing, regions and the industry was looking at other markets. Do you think you'll be able to keep those newer markets going while returning to China with as much wine as was being exported before? Absolutely. And it's very important that we keep on diversifying our markets because consumption worldwide in wine and alcohol, in, in fact, has actually decreased. Uh, and while we've been out of China, other, other countries have replaced our market share. So whether it be France, Spain, South Africa, Chile, 
they're already on market. So when we get back, we have to start getting back into the market and back into the shelf space. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but we're all ready. That was South Australian Wine Industry Association President and local winemaker Kirsty Balnaves. Now, diversification, it isn't just happening in the wine industry. Even the resources sector is looking at their options. Michelle Stanley has this report. Dig it up and ship it to China. It's been the MO for the Australian mining sector for decades. China's Australia's largest two-way trading partner. In the 2020-21 financial year, it was worth $267 billion. In the first half of this year alone, Australia's exports to China hit a record $102.5 billion dollars. That's in just six months. But there are reports of China's economy softening and geopolitical concerns, which have some companies looking elsewhere. Enter South Korea. It's difficult, I think, to overstate the great potential that we're facing for trade increased trade between Australia and Korea. John Walker is the acting chair of the Australia-Korea Business Council and he sees huge benefits to focus on the relationship between those two countries. Effectively, the new industries which have really come across us in the last few years are going to build that relationship even further. And again, this just comes back to the importance of West Australia in particular, but Australia in terms of supplying materials such as lithium and the rare earths associated with battery manufacturing, etc. This isn't a new friendship. Australia's exports to South Korea might not hit the eye-watering figures of China, but South Korea has grown to become Australia's third largest trading partner. Last year, the trade was worth about $100 billion, and John Walker says the relationship is continuing to grow and evolve. So it won't be just a matter of Koreans buying the raw material, if you like, from Australia, which has been our history with iron ore and coal, etc., gas, etc. But now I think we will be finding Australia being able to onshore some of the value adding to those materials alongside Korean companies and Australian companies in turn also developing manufacturing operations offshore in Korea. One company well-versed in the benefits of a strong relationship with South Korea is Pilbara Minerals. It's been working with Korean company POSCO for five years in a downstream processing arrangement for its lithium, which is mined at Pilgangora in Western Australia's Pilbara. Tony Kiernan is the chair of Pilbara Minerals and says South Korea is a great jurisdiction for Australian companies to operate. We're working on building a uh, 43,000 lithium hydroxide plant in uh, in Gwanyang in South Korea from the mine in Pilbara. Uh, starting probably in about, about a year and a half time, we'll be um, sending up to 315,000 tonnes of spodumene per annum to, uh, to be processed in uh, South Korea. And uh, that plant will produce what's called lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. So why should a Pilbara mining company or an Australian mining company look to South Korea and, and not potentially look to, um, to process to that lithium hydroxide on site instead? Yeah, no, to, to actually produce that hydroxide on site wouldn't be easy. The first step was, Michelle, we were offered the opportunity by, by POSCO some years ago 
So we'll run that one to the ground. South Korea were the ones that put their hand up. And I would think with great respect to uh, to other nations, excluding China, um, they are well advanced down the, um, the clean energy path. Korea, South Korea itself is the leader in chemicals required for batteries and those sorts of things. So it really is... Korea as a, as a nation has put a lot of emphasis on this. I'm not suggesting that the Japanese have been slow, uh, but I will say the Koreans have been very – and they're at the forefront of, of, of battery metals production. Australian Strategic Materials is also familiar with the spoils of a Korean arrangement. ASM is based in Perth and has its flagship rare earths project near Dubbo in New South Wales. The Dubbo project is construction ready but hasn't received its final investment decision. But before even getting that mine up and running, ASM went to the end. It's built a processing facility in South Korea, which is slowly ramping up production to feed into the magnet industry. Rowena Smith is the managing director and says getting processing in place first was an important step for the company. I think one of the challenges for establishing a rare earth business is that the supply chain at the moment outside of China doesn't exist. So if you have a project and you're only going to take it through to a concentrate or you're only going to take it through to an oxide, then at the moment you actually pretty much have to go back in through China to be able to get that to a final product that can be used by the end users. So, you know, we've made a deliberate step to say that we'll go all the way from mine through to metal and it's allowed us by doing the metals first to start working directly with the emerging magnet producers and really be part of, uh, you know, the industry growing. Why not go through China? Why Why do you want to do it all yourself? Well, I think um, really the interest at the moment is in creating an alternative supply chain, an end-to-end supply chain that will supplement the existing one. So it's not so much that we want to replace that existing supply chain. It's a very strong uh, and very large supply chain. But I think both the experience of COVID uh, more recently and I think then more generally just, uh, you know, sort of economic pragmatism, it's good to have diversity in your supply chain and to have more than one source. And so, you know, a number of countries, Australia, the United States, Korea, uh, a number of countries in Europe are very actively looking to build a supplementary supply chain. And so that's that's really what our objective is, is to accelerate the development of that end-to-end supply chain. Um, so, it, you know, it's there as an alternative for end users. That report from Michelle Stanley. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Cattle prices in Australia are plummeting. Producers are selling off huge numbers of stock at the moment before this big dry sets in. The sudden change in conditions has actually come as a bit of a shock to a lot of producers who up to recently were actually enjoying record high prices and and pretty good weather. And adding to their frustration, beef prices have barely shifted at the supermarket. Here's National Regional Affairs reporter Jane Norman. Everyone has their own inflation conversion rate to measure wistfully how the buying power of their dollar has sunk. City folk often talk of one less coffee a day or a yearly beachside holiday gone. Out in central Queensland, grazier Ian McCamley crunches his inflation calculator like this. 
if 12 months or more ago you were a cattle breeder and you had to muster 100 wieners and sell them to pay your interest bill on a given amount of debt, you now need to go and muster 1,200 wieners to pay exactly the same interest bill on exactly the same loan. Wieners are young cattle and the price Ian McCamley is getting for his has tanked. So a wiener that might have been making 1800 to $2,000 is now down around the 500 to 600 sort of range. You know, I've had producers ring me up pleading with us to buy their cattle for any figure, name your figure. Um, there is sales now getting no bids and online. I think probably the interesting part is it's just crept up on people really quickly. Australia's beef herd and sheep flock are at their highest levels in a decade after three really good seasons. But the conditions are changing rapidly. The country's drying out, there's limited feed and many farmers are now offloading a lot of stock. It's creating a bottleneck at abattoirs, which were already struggling with worker shortages before this sudden sell-off. I've been referring to it as the perfect storm and uh, I think people are hurting. Elka Cleverton is a beef producer in Harden in New South Wales. And what's frustrating people is that in the supermarkets no one's really noticed anything. The price has collapsed probably nearly eight, ten months ago now and um, we're still paying the same price at, at the retail end. And why is that? I think even farmers realise that the livestock is only the start of the supply chain. And of course, there are middlemen and processes and there's a huge amount of cost involved in processing the animals. And, and of course, everyone wants to make a dollar and that's okay. But when you have a price collapse of of 60% or more, you should see some impact at the other end. According to Jason Strong from Meat and Livestock Australia, beef prices have fallen in recent months by about 8% or a dollar a kilo. That's certainly a, a really challenging one to reconcile when you see your livestock price drop so fast. But we are seeing a, a smaller drop-off in the retail price. The good thing is we're seeing increase in volume being purchased as well. And that demand is ultimately what producers need to survive long-term. That was Jane Norman reporting there, but there is a prediction that cattle prices in Australia are actually going to start to rise again because what's happening in the States is that American producers are starting to restock after years of drought. As Rabobank analyst Angus Gidley-Baird explains to Alice Marshall. That's going to, as the, the title alludes to, send a wave through those global meat markets and our ability to possibly capitalise on that is, is where I'm going in terms of that'll be a, a positive influence on the cattle market over the next couple of years. And is that cattle market, it's not just Australian beef going boxed beef, is it? Are we also talking live X? I've done some numbers to figure out the relationship between that live export price and US import prices for lean trimmings. There is a relationship. It's not it's not a super strong one. The Australian cull cow, processor cow price has probably got the strongest relationship, understandably, because that's what goes into that trade. But it does have an influence on all Australian cattle prices and, and you know, a rising tide tends to lift all boats. So you'd expect that to, to flow through. It also means that there's, you know, it, uh, there's a global influence here as well you know less u.s product uh, means the u.s will be buying more but it also means less into places like japan and south korea and china that will mean that they're having to pay more that you know everything sort of moves around in that global market and, and, and we'll see pressures from all those uh all those export markets in the sense of just generally lower volumes in that global market 
you have a line here in your slides that says the contraction in the US production will be the main influence in the coming years. Can you just talk me through what you mean by the contraction? Yeah, so they've gone through their, their, their normal cyclical process where they increase cattle numbers and then yeah, get to the point and prices soften and people start decreasing cattle numbers. That's been exaggerated by a couple of years of drought. So they've reached max cattle slaughter and beef cow slaughter uh, at the end of last year. I think it's 450,000 head in a month. They're going through a gradual decline now. The, the volume of stock on hand is, is lower, even though it is continuing to be dry over there. They continue to sell some. So that's going to mean lower production. We're expecting production to be down sort of three four percent this year the next year and subsequent years that means that they've got less of their own products so they'll be looking for imports and there'll be less exports coming into the market as well that's angus goodley baird and he's a senior animal proteins analyst with rabobank speaking to alice marshall you're listening to countrywide my name's megan hughes coming up you'll meet rude jude an infamous character from western queensland you're listening to countrywide across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Did you know of the 35,000 native plants in Australia? Only a couple have actually been commercialised for food. So macadamias are the main one. That's a native food from Queensland. And the, there's some other emerging ones like finger limes, for example. But now a farm in Victoria wants to add more to this short list, putting more native foods on your plate, but as part of it as well, investigating drought resilience in cropping. Annie Brown went to look at plots of warrigal greens, kangaroo grass and myrnong. There's another good one there. That's fine. I'll give them a wash and then we'll cook them up a bit. Gay Baker is an Indigenous farmer in the hills of the Kiwa Valley in northeast Victoria. This morning, she's digging up some myrnong, an Australian native yam. It's been grown here in Australia by Indigenous people for a very, very long time. It used to cover vast areas of Victoria and New South Wales and further on. It was a staple food crop. was nearly lost over the time with um, sheep and cattle and loss of habitat. It is a vegetable, so it does need tending. To me, it tastes like a sweet parsnip. Some people say they can taste coconut. I can't. And you roast it. So like you caramelise your onion, you caramelise your myrnong. And it's very, very tasty. I guess you've been growing myrnong for a while then now. What started all this and why did you want to bring it back? Um, When I was doing my Diploma of Organic Farming at Greengate, our head lecturer, uh, Rob Fenton, gave me the opportunity to run the Murnong project there. And I was always interested in bush foods. I wanted to do herbal teas. But the opportunity was given and I took it up. And we've just gone ahead in leaps and bounds since then. (laughs) It's interesting being, I guess, at a trial site for crops that are thousands of years old you know they're not new crops are they no they're not new crops but the plants themselves the cropping methods have been lost the knowledge has been lost well lost to me anyway and my family and so forth so it's now um, relearning re-establishing re-identifying I have no idea where the lanceolata will cross with Walterii 
Or scapulata. I have no idea. We, we, we'll just have to... It's a trial and we'll grow it and see what's going to work, what's going to be the most resilient. Why do we need to bring back Indigenous cropping? The soils are not European soils. They're Australian soils. And they're trying... People are growing, and they're not trying, but they are growing European crops. But our environment is changing. Our weather is changing. Everything is changing. These plants, our Australian native plants, have lived in Australia for thousands upon thousands of years. They've lived through drought. They've lived through ice ages. They've lived through many changes. They are adapted to Australia. It is only a commercial aptitude that we all buy wheat bread, not kangaroo grass bread. It's now time to relearn these things and their values, and their values as food crops are quite often a lot higher than European commercial crops. And reintroduce them and, and bring it from bring bring it from a, a a garden novelty to a bespoke industry to then a commercial industry. That's Gay Baker from Gap Flat Track in Kurganya speaking to Annie Brown. Now the trial site is part of the University of Melbourne's redesigning broadacre farming systems project and it's funded by the federal government's future drought fund. And our final story today, you're going to meet Judy Aiken a.k.a. Rue Jude. She is well known for her potty mouth and her eclectic outback store in Western Queensland, selling fishing gear and sex toys. But now she's retired, aged 73. Charleville, about an eight-hour drive west of Brisbane in Queensland. I was born here and bred here and I'm going to die here and I've got my plot booked out at the cemetery because everyone's dying to get in there. So that's where I'm going, straight into the hole. After decades running her shop, Rue Jude has retired. Fishing gear, camping gear, toys, novelties, and a naughty corner. A what? A naughty corner. Yeah, and it just grew and grew. Judy Aiken is known far and wide thanks to her big personality and a few media appearances here and there. She's enjoyed every bit of her 41 years behind the counter. I didn't know what I was going to do. I really just wanted a shop to sell fishing gear and camping gear. Um, That was my intentions when I came back to Charleville and then I ended up with everything. One of the things she's most proud of is starting the local fishing club 32 years ago. All I wanted to do was get everyone together. I love my fishing and get them all together so we could get a clubhouse and um, this is what my intentions when I came back here and which we did, um, Desma Smith lent us money to buy 27 acres of land over the river. Jude's going to miss all the people who take a detour to Charleville just to meet her. They asked me where you go fishing, I said, well in the river. (laughs) (laughs) Which river? The river's just over here. See those buildings there, the ridge is over there. Oh, just here in town, yes, but I said there's heaps of spots to go fishing. We can take you everywhere. We've got maps and do that and send you everywhere. And then they come in and say, oh, my cousin said I've got to get a photo of you. And, and 
my best friend that lives next door to us, Fred, or Fred the Needle, whatever his name is, oh, knows you and said to say good day and all this sort of stuff. And, oh, it baffles me, honestly. It's just unbelievable. We've had a heap of people in this year from all over Australia. We've had people from overseas and New Zealand. I'm nearly, you know, it's unbelievable. But we've had people in, a lot of people this year from Tasmania. Anyhow, they kept coming, where are you from, Tasmania? I said, is there any bastard left in Tasmania? These are all up here in outback Queensland. It, you know, it's just unbelievable. Can't believe it. So what's next for this 72-year-old outback larrikin? I just want to sit back and relax. I don't know how, but I've never been bored in my life. I'm, I'm certainly not going to be bored. I just want to do my house up, put a bunch of bit of money into my house and that and then I want to just I want to go to Ayers Rock yeah I want to go to Ayers Rock and go to um, Northern Territory but I can go down you know meet see my friends and rallies and go fishing you coming that story was by Danielle Lancaster and there was additional production support by Lisa Herbert as well and that's what we have time for on Countrywide today thank you so much for your company My name is Megan Hughes. Goodbye for now.